conversation about legal issues that matter to you. Understanding the culture tells you something about how the society develops its understanding of law. It seems like they're protecting our right to privacy with cell phones. This is Stanford Legal with Pam Carlin and Joe Bankman. Welcome to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Hi, Joe. Hi, Pam. Pam, the events of the last few weeks with the tragic death of George Floyd at the hands of the Minneapolis Police Department have shocked everyone. It's left everyone wondering, how did we get to this position? And uh, what can we do to change things? Yeah, I mean, and it's, and it's not as if the George Floyd case was an isolated incident. It was at the end of a series uh, of cases in recent weeks involving uh, several permutations of the George Floyd problem with a woman being shot dead in her own bed by police who went into the wrong apartment, a man being uh, shot on the street while jogging, uh, and a series of other cases like that. And uh, we have with us today to talk about these issues, uh, David Sklansky, who's one of our colleagues at the law school, uh, a former federal prosecutor, uh, a leader of the Stanford Criminal Justice Center, uh, and somebody who in both his life as a practicing lawyer and his life as a scholar has thought a lot about police departments and violence. Uh, so we're really lucky to have you on the show again, David. Thank you so much for coming back. It's a pleasure to be here. David, with this kind of very open-ended question, what are your thoughts on what happened in Minneapolis and, and what does that touch upon in terms of where we are and where we might go? Well, one of the things that's striking to me is that um, 20 years ago, there was a very broad consensus that police reform in the United States was a great story of triumph. There was a, a broad sense shared across the political spectrum by academics and practitioners that um, at long last, the United States had figured out how to do police reform. We had this thing called community policing, and that was fixing all of the long-term problems that police departments had. In fact, 20 years ago, police departments, it's hard to believe this now, um, were held up as examples of the kind of reform that other units in government should try to emulate. Now, nobody thinks of police reform as a great success. We're back where we were um, in the late 1960s, early 1970s, when policing seemed not only in crisis, but in danger of throwing the country into crisis. And I think it's um, uh, in large part because the community policing movement for all its success had two great blind spots. One was racism and the other was violence. And so can you elaborate a little bit on uh, the violence one? The racism one seems relatively straightforward to understand, but what do you mean by the violence one? Well, we've had for half a century now um, an increasing focus on violence as uh, the main focus of what substantive criminal law uh, should be doing. 
there's a, the, the, when, discussions of, of substantive criminal law, the, the criminal law that applies to all of us, uh, um, take the distinction between violent offenses and nonviolent offenses as the most important distinction. Violent offenses is what everybody thinks is the most serious and needs to be addressed. And um, there's a widespread sense that there's a huge difference between people who do things that, uh, that, who commit violent wrongdoing and people who commit wrongdoing that's nonviolent. Within the world of policing though, we haven't had that sense. Uh, the focus on problems in policing um, throughout the second half of the 20th century was largely on other issues. The Supreme Court was focused on violations of privacy Legislatures were focused on procedural protections against police committing, carrying out searches or arresting people without probable cause. And it's not that police um, violence and police brutality uh, ever completely disappeared as an issue, but it never got the attention that it deserved, um, in part because uh, it uh, was a problem that was visited primarily upon poor people and people of color. And before the advent of body cams and cell phone cameras, lots of people could believe and convince themselves that the problem of excessive force by police departments wasn't a systemic problem. Sure, there were occasional police officers who abused their authority, but by and large, that wasn't a problem that American policing um, needed to address in any way different than the way it had always been addressing it. I mean, one thing that, I, that also I've sort of thought about here is that it was much easier to see those Fourth Amendment search and seizure issues litigated because they were litigated in criminal prosecutions where the person who had been searched automatically got a lawyer and a lawyer paid for by the government. Whereas in these excessive use of force kinds of cases where officers use too much force, um, the person against whom the force was used has to go out and find a lawyer and has to figure out some way or another of getting that lawyer compensated, whether it's by a contingent fee or fee shifting, and so it's much harder to get those cases litigated. Yes, I think that was true, and it was exacerbated by the fact that uh, the way in which procedural issues surface in criminal cases was through the exclusionary rule, um, and the nexus between violence and collection of evidence generally wasn't as, as immediate as the nexus between an invasion of privacy and collection of evidence. So it was easier to use the exclusionary rule to challenge invasions of privacy than to challenge improper uses of force. And, and oh, go ahead, Joe. David, you, you mentioned two things that, uh, uh, that have kind of failed and, and, and left us where we were, but the predicate was there was this community policing movement. And can you tell us a little bit about that and and what that was supposed to do. Sure. Beginning in the late 1980s and continuing through the 1990s um, and uh, into the 2000s, um, community policing became the orthodoxy of police reform in the United States. Everybody was in favor of community policing. Every police department claimed that it was doing community policing. And although some police departments 
just gave lift service to that idea. The fact that they felt necessary, the, the need to give lift service to it was an Ill, what was a reflection of how broadly the idea of community policing had penetrated American law enforcement. And the idea of community policing was that the police departments should not see themselves as separate from the community. They should see themselves as part of the community. They should not see themselves as a thin blue line. They should see themselves as partners with other organizations and with members of the community to um, produce safety um, and give people the kind of the, the kind of neighborhood security that they wanted. Um, so I, uh, the, the community policing movement did a lot of good. It, it helped move police departments into a position where many departments um, became much more open to criticism from the community, became much better at listening to the community and uh, establishing bonds with the community. Um, it helped make police departments more effective uh, at doing their job. It probably helped reduce violence too but it just but violence was never taken as one of the movement's uh, priorities, just as racism was never taken as one of the uh, movement's principal um, targets. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with our colleague David Sklansky about police reform. Joe, you know, David, when you talk about community policing and violence and being part of the community, I can't help but think of the really heart-rendering pleas in the Floyd case of, of members of the community. That is, this is in an African-American area where this happens. And members of the community are pleading with the police, don't do this. Give him a break, get off him, you could kill him. So it's a very vivid picture of a force that just seems foreign in every way. And it's not just against this arrestee who's on the ground pleading. It's also foreign from not with the onlookers. It's not doing what they thought should be done. Yeah, I think that's right. It, it was acting like an occupying army. And um, that's the antithesis of community policing. Unfortunately, it's the direction that uh, the federal government, uh, at least the White House and the Department of Justice, has been pushing police departments over the last three years. The, we have a president who keeps saying that he thinks police departments should be dominating. Um, well, um, that's not what community policing was about, and it's not what it's not what law enforcement should be about. Now, you've been involved in efforts to deal with uh, other police departments. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about. Uh, your work on the Ramparts uh, issue in Los Angeles? Well, uh, the Ramparts scandal was um, one of a long series of policing scandals uh, uh, in Los Angeles. This one emerged in the 1990s and had to do with uh, a rogue team within inside uh, the Los Angeles Police Department that was... Um, framing uh, uh, innocent suspects, carrying out violence against innocent civilians, uh, stealing uh, narcotics, um, dealing narcotics. It was really, really, uh, it was a bad situation and kind of astonishing 
um, uh, that it flourished to the extent that it did inside the Los Angeles Police Department. This scandal emerged about a decade um, after uh, the Rodney King uh, beating um, and the um, range of um, uh, recommendations that the Christopher Commission made in the wake of, of uh, that attack. Um, and the Ramparts scandal, like, uh, like the Rodney King beating, like a number of other scandals in the history of the Los Angeles Police Department, produced a number of recommendations um, which all pushed in the same direction of community policing, um, and none of which were fully adopted until uh, the federal government uh, launched uh, a um, injunction action uh, against the Los Angeles Police Department um, towards the end of the 1990s. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with David Sklansky about police department reform uh, and police violence. Joe? So what would community policing really be if, if this administration or maybe another administration said, let's really go there? What would be the hurdles you'd have to overcome? Well, at this point, because of uh, the, the long uh, litany of African-Americans um, and other people of color who have been killed by the police without adequate redress, um, the issue of violence has to be uh, front and center in regaining uh, any trust uh, by uh, minority communities. And uh, to its credit, the omnibus uh, bill that uh, the Democrats unveiled today for nationwide police reform takes that threat seriously and does a number of the things that experts have been suggesting for some time uh, are, are necessary in order to address violence. Um, beyond um, uh, those steps, though, which we can talk about, I think it's important to reestablish uh, the central tenets of, of community policing, which is that policing is not, and, and public safety is not just the job of, of the police department. The job of the police department is not to be a, t uh, a group of warriors, but to be public servants who work hand in hand with the community uh, and not against the community. And listen to the community instead of telling the community. So can you talk about some of the individual steps that you think would make a difference? Well, at this point, I think uh, we, we need to take steps to address uh, the scourge of police violence and particularly police violence against um, members of minority communities. And many of the things that are in uh, the bill that the Democrats unveiled today are important. Establishing a, a duty to intervene uh, so that law enforcement officers who see other officers using improper force are required uh, to do something to stop it. Requiring police departments to teach and require de-escalation. Uh, requiring, uh, mandating a ban on chokeholds and other kinds of carotid holds like the kind that killed Eric Garner um, and killed George Floyd. Um, banning no-knock dr no drug warrants. Um, uh, rolling back uh, the militarization of uh, police departments, which is something that the Obama administration um, started to roll back and the Trump administration 
made a, uh, made a 180 degree turn on. Um, and then I think um, uh, having st a, a stepped up federal involvement in local policing generally is important. Um, requiring the federal government to collect statistics on use of force, requiring the federal uh, government to accredit local law enforcement agencies and to establish federal standards for the use of force, um, requiring that the federal government maintain a registry of officers who've been subject to discipline for excessive use of force. All of that uh, is important. Um, the bill also does um, uh, takes a step that uh, the Criminal Justice Center here at Stanford Law School has uh, been advocating, uh, which is to require independent investigation and prosecution of uh, uses of deadly force by the police so that uh, when police officers engage in the use of deadly force and there's grounds for believing that it might have been wrongful or even criminal, they're not investigated by their own department and they're not prosecuted by the district attorneys that they work in, they work with uh, day in and day out. Um, is the idea behind that, that that local prosecutors tend not to prosecute the police because they depend on the police in the other cases they're prosecuting? Exactly, they have a conflict of interest, just like the department uh, itself does. And I know, uh, David, we had uh, David Owens on uh, this show who litigates some cases against police departments. And one of the shocking things to me, and I don't know that this came out in our show, but it comes out in what he's done, is that a lot of police departments in the past, when they investigate internally, it's really no investigation at all. I mean, it varies. In one case in Houston, I think it was uh, the officer gets 48 hours with an attorney to think of like a, his written narrative of the events as opposed to an investigation where you take an oral statement right away. So it's just a different animal than you would normally have uh, as an investigatory technique. We'll be back with more from our guest, David Sklansky, talking about police reform and police violence next on Stanford Legal on Sirius XM. Answers for the legal questions you've been thinking about. This is Stanford Legal. Welcome back to Stanford Legal, where we look at the cases, questions, conflicts, and legal stories that affect us all every day. I'm Pam Carlin, along with Joe Bankman. Joe? Pam, we're talking with David Sklansky. And David, during the break, you mentioned that there are some topics that people aren't talking about, even in the wake of what's happened in Minneapolis and other areas. Uh, can you give us an example of what one or two of those are? Sure. I think that we need to be thinking, uh, in addition to everything else that's now uh, part of the, the, the dialogue about police, how we enlist rank and file officers um, in the job of reimagining public safety and reimagining policing. Um, because uh, it's very hard to make any restructuring of policing work um, without the cooperation um, and um, involvement of rank and file officers. And um, when um, rank and file officers often complain that their perspectives are ignored, and they're usually right, and 
rank and file officers know a lot about policing. Their perspectives are important to listen to. There are lots of officers who have views about policing that we don't want to follow, just as there are lots of people who aren't officers who have views about policing we don't want to follow. Um, but we have somewhere between half a million and a million police officers in the United States. And many of them, most of them, are attracted to the job for the right reason. Um, they have things to contribute to the dialogue, and it's important to involve them, I think, in the, in the ongoing dialogue. That's, uh, th that's made difficult by the fact that police unions have positioned themselves as such stalwart enemies of reform in most cases, and have um, also positioned themselves as stalwart defenders of all officers who are accused of wrongdoing. Again, not in all cases, but in lots of cases. So enlisting the cooperation of the rank and file without uh, empowering um, police unions um, more than they're currently empowered, and, and while addressing the ways in which police unions currently have too much power, it is, is a tricky and difficult thing to accomplish, but I think it's important as we move forward. Do you think, David, there's an issue that a reformer could get rank and file support for? I mean, what would you hold out to the rank and file? Because I noticed that even recently, uh, the rank and file, for example, have defied some department orders in Buffalo. I think this has happened where they said, if you're going to push for reform, we'll just resign from a particular yeah. unit. What would, how, how do you make common cause with them? Is there an issue you think that would, would give common cause? Well, I think that there are, there are tens of thousands uh, of, uh, if not hundreds of thousands of officers across the country that would support a lot of the reforms that uh, we've been talking about earlier. Um, a lot of the reforms that are in the democratic legislation that have been proposed by uh, reformers. Many um, of the organizations that represent minority law enforcement officers, African-American law enforcement officers, Latino law enforcement officers, um, have uh, been campaigning for decades in favor of greater restrictions on the use of lethal force uh, by the police. So we, we, uh, I think one key to enlisting rank and file is not to see police unions as the only voice of the rank and file. I think another key long-term is that we need uh, uh, to have different kinds of police unions and a different kind of relationship with police unions. And we need to have a kind of grand bargain with uh, the rank and file with police unions that we will draw them in and listen to their insights and concerns, um, but they need to be partners in the task of remaking policing in a way that's fair um, and um, productive for all members of uh, society. This is Stanford Legal, and today we're talking with David Slansky about police reform. Um, and David, one of the things that you've heard a lot of demands for recently are either um, uh, abolishing uh, police departments altogether or the like. Um, what does it mean to talk about uh, abolishing a police department? 
Well, I, that's a good question. And I think a lot of people who say that they want defunding of the police or abolition of the police don't have a clear um, endpoint in view. What they often mean is that they want us to at least imagine what it would be like to not have to rely on a police department for many of the tasks, if not all the tasks that we currently do rely on police departments for. They want to think about ways in which some of the things that police departments do um, could be done by other organizations. Um, another way, are another thing- about, Are they thinking about things like dealing with people who are mentally ill or are they thinking about, you know, coming to your house when you say, when you come home and you find out that it's been broken into? I mean, what are, what are the things that should be done that aren't, be, that are done now by, by police who are armed and trained in a very different way that should be done by some other group of public servants or, or the community? Well, responding to people who are in mental health distress is at the top of the list. Um, and I, I think uh, this is another example of something that lots and lots of rank and file police officers would agree with. I think that what, what police officers believe correctly is that they have been made the agency that deals with mental health because nobody else has been willing to address the problem. Um, it, it, uh, it's not that that job was taken away from some other agency that asked to be in charge with it, in charge of it. It's that we deinstitutionalized mental health in this country and never created the apparatus for community mental health support that we said we would. And it was, and we left the police to clean up the problem. And uh, as we do with lots of problems, we have some examples of places that have abolished police departments. But what they've done by and large is substituted something, some other kind of police department. And sometimes it's been a change for the better. Camden, New Jersey abolished their police department, replaced it with a department uh, with, with contract service from the county. Um, and by all accounts has a much better police department now, a much less violent police department and a much less violent community uh, than it had uh, before it made that change. But they still have police. It's just yes. the community police. Excuse me, the county police instead of the local police. Yes, and I think that uh, it's it's difficult for me to imagine what uh, a world would look like in, 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 within our lifetimes that didn't involve uniformed officers uh, responding to situations where coercive force might be required. In a society like ours, uh, that where guns flow so freely, where we have more guns than people in the United States, it's hard to imagine a force like that that we don't arm. Um, having said all that, you still can operate very differently. Even if you have a force of uniformed officers, even if they have weapons, policing can look different. And community policing demonstrated that in the late 1980s and, and the 1990s. Well, we've been talking to David Skolansky about how we got here and what we can do to, to reshape our police departments. And David, you've given us a partial roadmap. Uh, we hope you'll come back yet again and uh, uh, fill in some of the details for us. It's been pleasant talking to you. So thanks to David for joining us today uh, on Stanford Legal, and thanks to our listeners for joining us on Stanford Legal here on Sirius XM. This has been Stanford Legal. 
on SiriusXM Business Radio. If you missed any of it, listen on demand, online, or with the SiriusXM app. 